Welcome back in everyone to another fantastic episode of Whisper in the Wings from Stage Whisper. We are joined by a very special guest today. We have the author Edward Miskey, whose book Cancer, Musical Theater, and Other Chronic Illnesses is available now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, at the Drama Bookshop, and anywhere else you purchase your books. And we are so excited to have him on our show to be talking about this great book, Rave Reviews. It's an incredible, true story. Uh, and I'm doing a terrible job of explaining his work. So let's just bring on our guest, Edward. Welcome to Whisper in the Wings from Stage Whisper. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. You just did a fine job at, at describing it. It's fine. <laughs> I was the ghost right now. I'm kidding. No, this, right. this, this is a great book. And uh, like I said, it, from what I've read, it's a true story of, of, a, of what you've gone through and, and some, some story, some anecdotes of what you've kind of found in, in your life experience. So would you tell our listeners a little bit about what this book is about? Sure. So in 2011, in the middle of doing a production of Hairspray, I had this little tiny lump pop up under my arm and it grew very quickly and blew up into like this grapefruit sized thing. And as soon as Hairspray was over, I came back to the city and had my doctors look at it and biopsied it. And I was diagnosed with this very rare non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And it was basically overnight that I like within the course of, I think maybe a week to 10 days that I went from like being on a stage, doing what I love to being in a hospital, like chained up to like machines and whatnot. And it was a very, very interesting kind of experience that like really kind of fucked around with my identity. And that is kind of the, the majority of the overarching theme that is like secondary to actually like what has happened is a conversation about identity and who you are and what happens to you during a circumstance like that. And I framed it, each chapter is framed within a musical because I didn't know how else to tell this, you know, like the experience of cancer is so heightened and so ridiculous and so like dehumanizing at times. And so to make it a more accessible conversation to be able to laugh at it, like, I just pumped a whole bunch of camp and musical theater into it to make it feel and read as ridiculous as it was when it was happening to me. So it's essentially like the point of right before diagnosis to the point of being told I was cancer free and then how to navigate your life after being told you're cancer free. Because oftentimes, you know, we think as people who may not have experienced cancer firsthand, secondhand, that like, you know, oh, you're cancer free. Congratulations. Go back to your life. Enjoy. You get to live now. And it's so much more complex than that. And it's the reason why I wanted to have the conversation about body dysmorphia and career, like displacement and relationships and sex and dating and friends and family and, and money and all of the things that you don't think about when you hear that someone's cancer free because those are all still things that exist after that after that fact wow just wow what a what an incredible story to tell and what an incredible way to tell it so how did you come up with the idea? What gave you the inspiration to write all of this down in the way that you decided to? So I kind of always knew deep down somewhere within that 
I wanted to do something with what had happened to me. And I, of course, like naturally all my friends are theater people. So they're like, do a one man show, but like over my dead body, will I do a one man show? So I essentially just kind of had it like in my head, like I'll do something with it someday. Like I'll know when the time is right. And then I met this guy I was three years out of being cancer free at this point, And he was only three months, I think. And he like kind of, we had this conversation and he confided in me about all the things that he was feeling, which was that he couldn't stand being around his friends. Like anytime his family would talk to him, he'd be like, shut up. And like, I, he didn't want to go to work and he didn't like feel like doing anything because it all felt so like not necessary or like unimportant, you know? And I sat there thinking like, holy shit, that's exactly what I was trying to deal and was still trying to deal with at that point with everything and everyone around me. And so hearing him say it, I was like, I, this can't be just the two of us. So I reached out to a couple of people I knew who had had cancer at some point in their life. And I talked to them about it and I asked them and like, yeah, that's exactly what happened. And so I was like, well, great. There it is. That's what I want to write about. I want to talk about what happens after the fact, which is, you know, the majority of the book is during but talking about after the fact is really hard to do without explaining what happens in the first place. So you have to build up the whole experience to get to that point and then to say, I didn't know what to do with myself because everything that I identified myself with was stripped out, right? Like my hair was gone, my body was destroyed, like the the auditions stopped calling and stopped coming in. You know, some friends had fallen away. I had a breakup during this period of time. There was a lot of things that shifted and changed and made my life look very different than what it was and what I thought it would be and what I wanted it to be. And so talking about that, you know, with as much humor as possible by like framing some of these circumstances in like legally or not legally blonde nine to five or like, you know, little shop of horrors or or very like into the woods like there's a three i think a three part chapter in the second half of the book in act 2 that's all into the woods about like body dysmorphia and the way that you look and i i compare myself the person i see in the mirror to like the the big bad wolf and like just like how it's it feels so icky and you know it, it it's heavy stuff but i i kept it as light as i could to get the point across and still make people laugh and mostly at my expense <laughs> because you know it is it is hard to it's hard to digest when it's not coming from a place of humor and you're not able to like laugh at it like you know and not to scrape the bottom of the barrel but like one of the chapters that people always come back to me with is this chapter where I was going through radiation and radiation makes you so constipated. And I decided to go to the gym because I felt well enough to go. And while I was there, the constipation stopped and I almost like shit myself all over the gym floor and barely made it to the, but like, it's so funny because of the way that it happens, you know? So it's just kind of making light of stuff like that. That was it. That was important to me writing this. Oh, that's amazing. So as you put this book together, and I, I'm just going to assume that were you writing this after you were cancer free, right? Oh, yeah. Years so after. As you were writing this book and reflecting on everything, what was it like developing it? 
Oh God, it was horrible. It was so hard. And that was kind of unexpected. I, as I was writing it, you know, like I had this job and I was sitting at this desk and it was kind of low stakes. And I spent basically six hours a day, five days a week for a whole year writing this book. And I got up to like, I think 160,000 words at one point. And then that had to get cut in half and edited down (laughs) for it to be like, you know, not war or in peace, <laughs> you know, like just like this huge thick novel that no one's going to read. But it was really tough kind of revisiting some of those moments and being really honest with myself about, you know, what was really happening and not trying to embellish because that's that's another thing people ask me all the time, like, how much of this is true? And I'm like, all of it, like, really, all of it, the only things that I really embellished upon and made larger than reality were the circumstances like the people and the circumstances surrounding what was happening. But for the most part, I think if, if not all of it, it's all a hundred percent true. It's just the way that I told it that was a little, you know, turned up on the saturation. Yes. I mean, if you can't laugh at yourself, what can you laugh at? Right? Exactly. Well, so what is the message or the thought that you're hoping your readers will take away? That's going to be different for everybody. I think, you know, like, I think the the main idea of the book was to kind of put a spotlight on people who are going through something big and humanize them. You know, like like you don't think cancer patient and sex. Those are two things that you don't really put on the same plate. But that's the thing, you know, you still, especially younger people who are experiencing it. I was 24 when it started and it was 25 when I started treatment and you know I still was like young and hot and skinny and like you know I was half of me was aspiring to be a musical theater performer full-time the other half of me was aspiring to be a fuck boy and like when I went back in the hospital both of those things went away and I was sad about it and I tried to figure out ways to still do musical theater and failed and I also tried to figure out ways to be a hot fuck boy and failed because I looked like a cancer patient and so it's like this this humanizing of very regular everyday things that people who are not going through something like that experience, but putting it into terms of like, no, like cancer patients are still people. They're still humans that are experiencing real life emotions and real life experiences. And doctors and nurses who have read this book have come to me and said that this has changed their perspective of bedside manner because so often you get put into a hospital situation and you are just a patient. And in my case, where the situation and circumstances were very rare and very dire, and no one at my first hospital really knew what to do, I felt very often that they viewed me as a science project that they could do whatever they wanted with and, like, just see what happens just for the case study, you know, just for the, the publishing of a paper. And, you know, I think adding a little bit of, like, you know, I had a boyfriend that broke up with me during this takes that dials that back a little bit more to be like, oh, you're a person. And you're not just like this warm thing that I'm putting needles in and like pumping full of drugs. Yeah, you just kind of throwing stuff at us does nothing, you know, it does nothing. Well, and and also like one of the things that I, I made a point of while I was in the hospital was to try and have fun, you know, like during the times where I could. And you know, I like obviously not when I was like getting chemo and all that other stuff, but like I would have to spend like five, 10, 12 days in the hospital at a time. And when I was in for my stem cell transplant, which was like a 21 day run, 
like I was the fun room. Like the nurses would purposefully come to my room last so that they could hang out with me and my friends because I always had friends there. I always had family there and we would always be laughing. And so I was always the last room so that they could come in, close the door, pull the blinds down and hang out for a couple of minutes. <laughs> you know, and like one of the one of the things that I do that I do talk about with that kind of component too is if you are someone who is going through something like that to purposefully and intentionally make good memories. And I think there's a there, there's like a duality to this reasoning too. Like make good memories not just for yourself so like when you when you live you have something to look back at and be like god we had so much fun you know like and i get to do that now because we did do that but should something happen and you not make it your friends and family have something to look back on to say that was a really good day yep well rounding out this first part of the interview who do you hope have access to cancer musical theater and other chronic illnesses I mean, everybody by the book. <laughs> no, I, I think it's not going to be for everyone because of course there's like adult language and adult circumstances and whatnot. But I really hope that whomever does get a hold of it is able to like laugh at it for one. I think that's the most important. And then the other part of it is if they do know someone who has had cancer in any kind of way to be able to view them a little bit differently and a little bit more, I guess, like, quote unquote, normally than they would have if they wouldn't have read what I had to say about being in those circumstances. switch things up now on the second part and i'm i'm just having an absolute great time i could go on and on for hours i mean we can make this like a seven part series at this point <laughs> but i want to let our listeners get to know you a little bit more and i want to start by asking you what or who inspires you what playwrights composers or shows have inspired you or are even some of your favorites oh i'm gonna have such a cheesy answer to this <laughs> Okay, I, I have other answers, but I'm going to lead with my mom and dad. They're both musicians. My mom plays piano. You know, she runs a hospital. She's a badass. My dad is a singer-songwriter, and he plays full-time. He is on tour constantly. He's always gigging. He has albums out on Spotify all over the place. And it's just kind of like, you know, and he didn't really come into that fully until he was almost 60, and so it's kind of like this nice like point that I get to look at to be like, it doesn't matter if you're at where you want to be right now, there's still time to do it. Like I'm not quite half his age, but you know, close to it. And it's nice to see that happen and like them live this very full, rich li life together with like their insane children who do all kinds of insane things, you know, this being one of them. <laughs> so that's that's first and foremost but i think in a more lofty like celebrity famous person inspirational way i always i always default to seth mcfarlane i love him i think he is so talented and he's so good at everything and i find myself often being confused with myself and what i do and what i want 
because I do a lot of things, you know, like I wrote this book, I produce TV, I've done theater, I've run my own company, I do a lot of things that are it's in in like corporate world that has nothing to do with theater. But then I also do voiceover. And I also write for TV and like, like, and produce my own music. And so like, there's so many different things that I do. And I think we often hear this whole like, you know, you have to be one thing or you're going to confuse people. And maybe that's true to a degree. And that I will say as a caveat depends on what you're talking about. But I look at Seth MacFarlane and I'm like, he is just doing everything. And I like to use him as a barometer to just be like, that's my dude. Like, that's who I want to be when I grow up. I feel like nothing that guy can't do. Literally, he's incredible. I love him. That is a fabulous group of inspirations there. So I love that. Yeah, mom, dad, and Seth MacFarlane. <laughs> what a wonderful Thanksgiving. Right. Uh, I should only be so lucky. <laughs> have you seen any great theater lately you might be able to recommend to our listeners? I have seen so much good theater lately. I just took my mom. So I, okay, this is going to be a roundabout way to answer this This question i worked at worked it out that i had a billboard in times square over pride weekend for my book and in doing so my mom wanted to come up and see it because she's the best and had the time to my dad did not but that's fine there are pictures lots of pictures rebecca j michelson photographer to broadway stars all over the place we love her she took all my shots in times square we love so she came up my mom came up and you know, the billboard was like a minute long. So like that's one minute out of the however many hours. So I took her to see some like it hot and she wasn't sure if she was going to like it. I had already seen it. So I knew, but that show is just so good. It's like every single musical theater pastiche you could possibly ask for in one show. The act two tap number chase scene is worth the Tony alone. Like what in the actual world was that? It's just incredible. My mom loved it. And anytime I can get her to giggle is the best thing ever. I took both of my parents to go see Shucked the last time they were here. It was my second time seeing it. What a goddamn good book that is. Just the whole thing. It's just zinger after zinger after zinger. And I don't think my parents have laughed that hard in a very long time, which was wonderful to see. And I, my friend Catherine worked on the show and it's just, I think it's going to last a very long time. I hope it does. You know, fingers crossed. I think it's one of the most entertaining things I've ever seen. The cast is incredible. The music is great. The story is fun. Like, we love. And, you know, you and I were talking about earlier about Sweeney Todd. I mean, what a great revival. I think it's, for me as a non-dancer, I think it's a little over-choreographed. I don't really, like, get that whole thing. My friend Scott and I saw it in opening night, and we were like, you know, Sweeney Todd and the Supremes. Like, I felt like it was a little heavy-handed on the choreo situation, but I'm not a dancer. What do I know? I just think Josh Groban sang the shit out of it. Annalie Ashford is brilliant, and Ruthie Ann Mill is like, just, what what the fuck? Just so good. What else have I seen? I've seen so much. <laughs> like This has been a really wild year for me seeing theater. Yeah, I mean, those are the most recent ones, I believe. And solid shows. All Yeah, really all very solid shows. shows. Well, what is your favorite part about working in the theater? I think my favorite part about, ooh, you're not going to like this answer. I think my favorite part about working in theater is that I don't work in theater anymore. It's one of those, it's one of those things where 
it's the thing that I loved so much that hurt me more than I got out of it. You know, I worked very consistently for a very, very long time, and I was very lucky to get the amount of work that I did. But a lot of the damage done along the way wasn't worth continuing. And it just became not worth it for me anymore. And I kind of realized that I was I was fully healed from that really kind of this year when I was seeing the shows that we mentioned before, and I didn't want to play a single role. And I just watched the show and I was like, yeah, this is great. Instead of sitting there feverishly tracking someone's role to be like, okay, that's the role. Like, this is what, like, so when these auditions come up, I'm going to like, and just why? I never enjoyed going to the theater because I was, it was a job and it was always like, I can play that role. Let's learn it. And I would try to like learn the role in the theater while I was sitting there. Like, I, it's just wasn't, it wasn't fun anymore. And, you know, there was some shit that went down last year. I tried to come back. I had kind of decided already that I was done. And then I was booked on the first audition I went to last year for the Chicago National Tour. And then at the last minute, I was replaced. And there was no reason given. There was nothing. I got a buyout. And that was the end. And it it was fun. I was fine with it because I had all these this other stuff going on with the book. And in my head, I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do all this on the road, but I'll figure it out. It'll be fine. And really what it was, was the universe giving me the biggest course correction possible to be like, what are you doing? Focus on this book. Because they're in South Korea right now. Like, I would not be able to do any of this if I was on the road. And and I'm fine with where this has taken me. In the moment, it felt like shit. And it was a lot of deception and bad producing and, like, there was a whole thing with, like, the creative team as well that I won't get into, but it just was like, I don't like doing this anymore. I don't want to have to put up with this anymore. First of all, it doesn't pay enough. The cir- the circumstances that you're put in are just not good. It's fine if you're like 25. Like, okay, great. But And if your tolerance level extends past a certain age, then like more power to you. But the kind of success that I wanted in that industry, I wasn't ever going to get because I was not part of the club. I was not part of the the short list of people as much as I tried. And I loved what I did. I, I loved the work that I did and I wouldn't trade it for anything, but I needed to step away. And so my version of being able to still feel like a creative person and being able to contribute to that part of my life and my heart and my soul is adapting this book for television because it is going to be a musical series And so I get to make that and I get to be a part of that. And that to me is better because I have control over the environment. I have control over who does what with who and when and how as far as like misbehavior amongst the creatives is concerned because we've all seen that. And one of the reasons why I started my production company was to make sure that everyone was treated well, respected and paid. No exceptions. Absolutely. So that's my, so that's my journey. (laughs) No, but I love that. I love that. And I love, I love the fact that you shared that. I now want to ask my favorite question that I love to ask guests, which is what is your favorite theater memory? Oh my God. That is so easy. I have two of them and I'll give you the less 
okay i have two of them and they're short i promise when i was a kid my aunt who was the who does wardrobe on broadway she was the one that would give us cast recordings for broadway and so like one of the first ones we had was secret garden and there was a production of it at the local like civic opera house near where we lived and we went and one of the things i remember about it i don't know if it was a local production or a tour or whatever i'm not really sure but i couldn't have been more than seven or eight years old i don't think and we went to this theater and there was a person in the lobby dressed as a sunflower and they would like pretend to water themselves and they would like mime it was like a mime dress as a sunflower and handed us little sunflowers like was handing like little sunflowers to kids and that to me was just like as a kid like that really kind of was the birth of my love for immersive interactive theater kind of things when i was like nine and then, of course, like the first Broadway show I ever saw was the revival of 42nd Street in 2000 with Eric McCormick. My, that was the first show my aunt worked on. We, you know, met David Elder. We got to meet Christine Ebersole and the whole the whole nine. But it was really like this beautiful moment where it was like, oh, my God, people get paid to do this in a big city in a big way. And people who aren't your family and friends pay to come see you do this. And I was like, this is amazing. This is what I want to do. And it was, and that aside, that realization aside, it was the curtain coming up to their knees and watching their feet tap that I was like, holy shit. I'd never seen anything like that. And it was such a moment where I was like, I want to be a part of that. I don't know what, I don't know how to say what that is, but I want that. I love that. Those are two great memories. Oh, Thank you so much for sharing those. That's amazing. Well, as we wrap things up here, are there any other projects or productions you have coming to the pipeline we might be able to plug? You had mentioned the book becoming a television show. Yes, a lot of the details of that I'm keeping under wraps right now because as you know, things in TV production land can change and whatnot, you know, like working title kind of thing. But I'm really excited about that. We're getting the ball rolling with that as far as, you know, moving towards a pre-production situation at some point. I also just launched last month a podcast with my very, very good friend and producing partner, Sarah Seeds, who is on SAG Council and is a badass producer and writer and just completely kicks it, kicks ass. And that podcast is called I Want to Be a Rich Bitch. And basically we talk about we talk about a lot of things, <laughs> some of which is like what we're doing and, and whatever, but we talk about industry and whatnot. And, and we interview people who are in the entertainment industry who are doing big things who have come from nothing. So like our whole thing is like no Nepo babies. I don't want to hear your experience if you're super rich, because that is not an experience that is normal, you know, for the rest of us, you know, unfortunately in this industry, it does take a lot of money and connections and whatnot. And if you have those things and can use them and leverage them to get where you want to go like more power to you i'm a big fan of buying your way up do it you know but for the 99 percent of everyone else who's just trying to like claw their way up like that's what we're here for i'm rooting for you guys and that's what i want to be a rich bitch is all about is the embodiment of being a rich bitch i love that (laughs) definitely have to tune in yeah Finally, if our listeners want more information about cancer, musical theater, and other chronic illnesses, or about you, maybe they'd like to reach out to you, how can they do that? 
I mean, I am at Edward Miskey on every platform. YouTube is kind of sparse. I was experimenting with that for a little bit, but TikTok and Instagram are my main two. Follow me, DM me. I'm always checking. I'm one of those like inner retentive people that cannot have notifications. So like I always check my DMs, like always, because I want those notifications to go away. <laughs> I love I'm with you on that. It's well, Edward, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today and sharing this amazing book. It is incredible. I'm so excited for the future of it and for everything you're going to go on and do. So thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew. This has been delightful. <laughs> thank you. My guest today has been the author, Edward Miskey, whose book, Cancer, Musical, Theater, and Other Chronic Illnesses, is now available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, at the Drama Bookshop, and anywhere else you pick up books. So make sure you go and get your copy right now, right away. And while you're at it, also make sure you follow Edward at Edward Miskey all over social media to stay on top of all of his many upcoming projects. And send him a message, tell him how much you love the book, ask him your questions. But go now, go and pick up this great book, Cancer, Musical Theater, and Other Chronic Illnesses. We love it. You're going to love it too. So don't miss out on it. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez reminding you to turn off your cell phones, unwrap your candies, and keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Maniac by Jazzar. Other music on this episode provided by Jazzar and Billy Murray. You can also become a patron of our show by logging on to patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. There you will find all the information about our backstage pass as well as our tip jar. Thank you so much for your generosity. We could not do this show without you.